classes here at uh, Eastside right now are going through the uh, story of the Bible, the Bible narrative, taking about a four-year trek through the entire Bible. And we'll be in the period of the divided kingdom this morning, uh, looking at uh, some things that happen, especially in the northern kingdom and the advent of Elijah coming onto the scene and standing up for God against idolatry. And so here are the 17 Bible periods as we organize them here in our classes at least, following some of the work of Bob and Sandra Waldron. And uh, we've come uh, after the period of the United Kingdom, Saul, David, and Solomon, we've come to this period of the divided kingdom, uh, which will last uh, for a couple hundred years in the north and a little bit more than that in the south, uh, between Israel and Judah. Israel is going to be taken captive finally in 722-ish. B.C. and Judah in about 586. But we're just uh, getting into the heart of the time period of the divided kingdom. In this lesson, we're going to look at uh, a treaty that is made between the two kingdoms, between Israel to the north and Judah to the south, that was probably ill-advised on the part of the southern king. And also, we'll spend most of our time this morning looking at God's call of the great prophet Elijah and uh, his impact on the spiritual situation in these two countries, I think, cannot be overestimated. And certainly he's called uh, into his service for God, right time, right place, and with empowerment from God that's just uh, amazing as we look at the wonderful miracles that he performs. As you read through the Bible, uh, you think there's a miracle on every, every page, but there's not. There are certain times in biblical history where God uh, sends miracles, especially through his prophets, and usually that'll come at a time uh, when reformation is needed or, or when something new God is doing is being accomplished. Uh, we had a, a big group of those kinds of miracles during the life of Moses, obviously. And now we come to the time when Israel is falling away, Judah is having a lot of spiritual problems, and God sends prophets like Elijah and Elisha working mighty miracles to bring the people back to God. Well, in this time period, uh, really earlier and onward as well, idolatry becomes Israel's national weakness. Jeroboam has set up the calf worship in the north. Really, the calf worship was just a perversion of the worship of Jehovah. Uh, Jeroboam had said, these are the gods that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so a lot of the calf worship sort of was a uh, perversion of true worship to God, and there was some recognition that there was a God, one God, that brought them up out of Egypt and all that sort of thing, but uh, the gods of the Canaanites were just completely pagan. <clears throat> there were primarily the Baal and the Asherah. Baal uh, was the god of fertility and also of the storm. Asherah was a fertility goddess. Uh, there was a lot of immorality involved just in the worship of the, this god and goddesses, uh, it would include um, uh, ritual prostitution uh, in the shrines uh, where these uh, gods would be set up. And so it wasn't just that they were worshiping uh, false religion, but it was that the kinds of things that they did were so degrading and so dehumanizing and just so immoral that the entire uh, pagan culture would just strike at the very fabric of a nation. And that's what was going on, and that's what God saw when he looked down in the time of Elijah. So before we get to that, as I mentioned, there's a, 
a treaty of peace that's going to be made. So Jehoshaphat is a good king, fairly good king, pretty good king, to the south uh, in Judah. And he agrees, for some reason, that his son, Jehoram, should marry Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. Ahab's this very wicked king that we've been introduced to. And in that way, there's going to be peace between these two kingdoms. Uh, it was a noble goal. God's people could be united. The division could be healed. But peace that compromises righteousness is never good. And it doesn't matter who you are, what the relationship is, uh, who you're trying to make peace between. If you have to compromise righteousness and moral principles in order to make peace, it is not worth it. You will wind up uh, far worse off than you were to begin with. And this principle, uh, again, follows us even in our lives today. Everybody loves peace. We should strive our best to make peace. The Bible says, as much as in you is, be at peace with all men. And boy, that's what I, want, I want to be at peace with all men. But I don't want to sacrifice holiness or righteousness that God has enabled me to have through the blood of his Son uh, in order to be okay with somebody else. I want to be okay with God first. And I think you do too. Well, that was a problem. Uh, thus far in the history of these two nations, as we looked at them, you know, Israel has been characterized, every one of their kings has been evil. They've led people away from God. They practiced the calf worship, the sins of Jeroboam, and now uh, many more sins are being added to that. So far, Judah has had multiple godly kings, not all of them, but many of them have been fairly godly. Uh, you certainly look at Jehoshaphat, uh, look at Asa, uh, these men were, were good men. But many good men throughout time have compromised their convictions to make peace, and invariably that is with disastrous results. So the text tells us that Jehoshaphat, 1 Kings 22 and verse 44, Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. In 2 Chronicles 18 and verse 1, the text says Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance, and by marriage he allied himself with Ahab. So he's allying himself with Ahab, this wicked king idolatrous king. And then it says to us, it tells us about Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram when he comes to reign after Jehoshaphat. This is Second Chronicles 21 in verse 5. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, not the kings of Judah. So he's walking in the way of wickedness just as the house of Ahab had done for he had the daughter of Ahab as a wife and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So it was this marriage to uh, the daughter of the king of Israel and a, a, a pagan mother-in-law, that marriage that takes uh, him away from the Lord. So in, in this context, this historical context, then God is going to call Elijah. Elijah, we will learn in 1 Kings chapter 17, is from the city of Tishbe, that circle there, you might not be able to see that on the map, uh, but most of you are familiar with some of this geography. Uh, he was from uh, the town of Tishbe, uh, so he's a Tishbite, is a, what he's called, Elijah the Tishbite. Uh, so God leads Elijah through really a series of tasks, if you will, that seem not only to uh, be worth doing in and of themselves, but also sort of testing Elijah's mettle, if you will, and preparing him for bigger things to come. I think, as God does so many times in uh, bringing along his servants, he starts with small things, you know, and then brings them to the great moment that he's preparing them for. 
And I, I see that in Elijah in his early life. Uh, so we'll see that he'll uh, hide in Gilead near the brook Kareth, that he'll go to Zarephath, Zarephath uh, to the widow's house, and a lot of faith involved in all of that. And then, of course, finally he'll confront Ahab on Mount Carmel. You see Carmel circled there uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean. We'll be talking about that uh, here just momentarily. So here we go into the story of Elijah. He appears very abruptly in the text. Uh, we haven't heard of him thus far, but all of a sudden in 1 Kings 17, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, now Ahab's the king of the north, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so by uh, this proclamation, which was a result of prayer that he had offered to God, uh, there will be no rain. And it will not rain for three, three and a half years. There will be a severe drought as a result of this. We have talked, especially last year, as we were focusing on being a house of prayer, we're talking about praying based on scriptural promises. You remember that? You find a promise in God's Word, you can pray based on that promise with a lot of confidence. God wants to do that for you if He's promised you something. So, back, way back, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 28, um, we learn that God knew that his people would serve other gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Uh, he is the living God, as Elijah says. Uh, he is the living God, the true God. And by that proclamation, Elijah is making, uh, by that truth, Elijah is making this proclamation. Uh, but God had promised, back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, that uh, in verse 13, there, that if you, he's telling the people, you remember this is Moses talking to the people on the plains of Moab, uh, Deuteronomy uh, 11 and verse 13, it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you, to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart, I will give you rain for your land in its season. And then you skip down to verse 16 if you're following me, Deuteronomy 11 and verse 16. Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve, serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain, and the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which God is giving you. So here's what God had said. If you don't obey me, I'm not going to give you rain. It's just straightforward, right? So when Elijah prays the prayer, and we don't really learn about him praying that prayer until way over in the New Testament, of course, in James chapter 5, where James is talking about prayers of faith and the effectiveness of righteous prayers, he says, he uses Elijah as an example. And he says, Elijah was a man of na uh, with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It did not rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and earth produced its fruit. So here's a great lesson this morning, guys. We've, we talked about this a good bit last year, but... When God said something, has said something, this is the way he wants it to be, this is the way it's going to be, and you pray a prayer based on that, that prayer has a lot of power. Elijah, please understand this, I don't think Elijah worked a miracle. 
You hearing what I'm saying? I don't think Elijah worked a miracle in causing the rain to stop. He just prayed a prayer. That's James's point. Elijah was a man of light nature as we are. He worked some great miracles. This wasn't one of them. He just prayed a prayer. God answered it. And when we're praying based on the promises of God, uh, he'll answer prayers similarly. Whatever we ask for, that's the power of prayer. So it's a great lesson, great illustration of that. Well, Elijah is instructed then by the Lord at this point to, uh, <clears throat> verse 2, Lord, word of the Lord came to him, and the Lord tells him to get away and go down to the brook Kareth, which flows into the Jordan. It shall be that you can drink from the brook, uh, and he says, I've commanded the ravens to feed you there, so God's providing food for him, and the ravens would come and, and bring him food while he was staying there. Uh, the text tells us it would be uh, morning and evening that uh, the ravens would be bring bread and meat. But after a while, the brook dries up, and uh, because of the rain, because of the drought that Elijah had prayed for, and so what's going to happen is, God is going to send him up to um, Zarephath. So here he is in Tishbe, and we believe that's the almost certain location. Uh, the Kareth Brook is in this area, and he's going to go up here to Zarephath. If we pick up the reading in verse 8, the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Somebody tell me something about Sidon that we have just noted, somebody who's from there. Who's from there? Let me ask that. Who's from Sidon? Jezebel, <laughs> the wicked queen of the north. All right, so she is Ahab's wife. Uh, this is kind of almost humorous in a way because... Uh, Ahab, when he realizes this drought is happening, and Elijah had pronounced this drought, uh, as we'll find out in a little bit, he's looking all over the place for Ahab. He wants to really get his hands on Ahab. And Ahab goes basically and hides, at the instruction of the Lord, in the, in the backyard of Ethbaal, king of Sidon, who is Jezebel's father. Basically in the backyard of these pagans. And uh, it, it's, as I said, it's, it's amazing how God, God works things. Um, but God providentially there arranges I, I put care for him but really for him to care for the widow and her son as well and for God to take care of all of them but God has promised uh, arranged for all of that so we, we come in the reading he goes to Zarephath in verse 10 comes to the gate he sees this widow we're familiar with this story she's gathering sticks he, he says, calls out to her, could you please bring me a little water in a cup? Now, if you've been paying attention, water might be hard to come by because there's been a drought that's dried up brooks and things like that. But he, he calls for the widow to bring him a little water in a cup, and she uh, seems to drop what she's doing and go to get it. But as she's going, he calls out, and bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So bring me a little bit to eat with that, if you, if you don't mind. You know, you can just see uh, he's hungry, he's thirsty. And um, she says, as the Lord your God lives, now please notice this, there's, uh, Ahab, in, in, uh, rather, uh, 
Elijah, in making his proclamation, has said, had said, as the Lord God lives. The difference between Elijah and Ahab is that Elijah worships a living God. Ahab worships an idol which cannot see or hear or talk or do anything. Elijah's worshiping the living God. This woman, when she greets uh, Elijah, she recognizes enough about him to know that he's an Israelite, I suppose. But she says to him, as your God lives, as your God lives, that may indicate that she wasn't really on board with the God of Elijah, but she was putting this on him and his God. She says, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, a little oil in a jar, and see, I'm going to gather a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So this is our last meal. <laughs> this is all we've got. I'm just going to you know, pick up these sticks, go make some fire, use this last little bit of, of flour and oil, and this is going to be our last meal. Well, Elijah tells her, if you'll go make me a little cake first, uh, let me eat and drink, that what you have in that jar of flour and the bin of flour and the jar of oil is going to feed you and your son until the drought is over. At that point, the woman decides to act on faith. What have you got to lose? It's her last meal anyway, right? But she acts on faith and she goes and does what Elijah says. And sure enough, the oil and the flour somehow, miraculously, by the hand of God, are not used up now for this probably very long period of time. We, one might imagine maybe halfway through the drought, another year or so, who knows. But for some God, good long time, uh, they are able to eat from oil and flour that are providentially provided. Jesus, in the New Testament, just a quick reference, makes note of this. He mentions in Luke chapter 4 and verse uh, 24 that there were a lot of widows in Israel, a lot of nooks and crannies that God could have sent Elijah to, but he sends Elijah to a widow in Zarephath to a foreigner, if you will. Jesus is making the point that, you know, a, prophet's, that a prophet doesn't have honor in his own country. So, there in, in uh, Nazareth, where he was in Luke chapter 4, people weren't receiving him, but people elsewhere would. And that was the case with Elijah. Here, here, she, here he was, received by this foreigner in Sidon, when maybe many of his own people would have turned him over to Ahab. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting story. But it shows that, by the way, it shows that Jesus knew this record. Obviously, he would. And sort of puts his stamp of approval on it as something that's instructive for us. Anybody have a comment or thought right here? I'm doing a lot of talking, but we've got a lot to cover. Anybody have something you want to throw in? Yes, sir. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think that's, his providence is all over this, obviously. And uh, that's, a, that's a great point. So as time goes on, and Elijah's being cared for here in this way, <clears throat> we come to verse 17, and uh, the, the widow's son becomes very sick. Uh, there's no breath in him. He dies in verse 17. She says, she says to Elijah, uh, just grief-stricken, you can only imagine as a mother loses her child, she, she sort of blames him. Uh, if you look at verse 18, she says to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? In other words, here you are, man of God. Is this, is this punishment for my sins? Is that why you've come? Is that what this is about? Uh, I, She's freely admitting she's a, maybe a sinful person. Maybe this would be something she'd expect God to do, judging her in this way, not knowing God. But he said to her, you know, give me your son. So he takes uh, the son up in his arms. He goes up into the upper room where he had been staying. He lays him on the bed. He cries out to the Lord. Um, you know, is, is, is this from you? Is this what you want? And Elijah stretches himself up over the child three times. He cries out to the Lord, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. That's verse 21. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, Your son lives. What a, you can only imagine the, the joy, the uh, amazement at what had happened here. Reminiscent, of course, of uh, miracles that Jesus performs. Where here, Elijah gives the child back to his mother, alive. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. It seems that most of the time, when God performs miracles through people, if not all of the time, when God performs miracles through someone in Scripture, his point is to put the stamp of approval on whatever that person is saying. That this person is empowered by God to perform miracles, to demonstrate that the word that he speaks is God's word. That's what he did with Jesus. He was a man approved by miracles. That's what he did with the apostles. Men would know that the apostles were sent from Jesus because of miracles. The New Testament plainly states that. The miracles confirmed the word that was preached. The widow of Zarephath makes a right conclusion here. Elijah has to be a man of God and speaking God's word because of this amazing miracle. To bring somebody back from the dead, somebody who was truly dead, she knew he was, and yet brought back to life. Well, that brings us to chapter 18, and uh, you know this story, so we're not going to belabor it, belabor it a lot. After, in the third year, with no rain, in chapter 18 and verse 1, the Lord tells Elijah to go present himself to Ahab. At this point, severe famine is covering the land. There's very little food, very little water, crops are gone, animals are dying, domestic animals. Um, so Ahab goes, and again, I think by the providence of God probably here, he goes to Samaria, sent to Samaria, the capital where Ahab's palace is. 
And on the way, he meets Obadiah. And Obadiah here is the uh, administrator of Ahab's household. And Ahab and Obadiah have apparently been talking about the drought, and they are uh, surveying the land. They split up. One goes one way and one goes another way. But they're surveying the land to find water or something that they can try to save uh, the animals that are still uh, uh, alive. And so Obadiah is by himself. He's looking for, for water, for better pasture or whatever. And he runs in. Elijah runs into him. And Elijah says to, says to Obadiah, bring Ahab to me. I'm going to meet Ahab. And uh, Obadiah says, wait a minute, no. We've been looking all over for you. Uh, he sent people to other countries looking for you. And if, if I leave and go get him to come to you and you're not here, I'm a dead man. And as sure as I leave, the Spirit of God is going to carry you off somewhere and I won't be able to find you. And, and by the way, didn't you hear what I did when I, I saved a hundred prophets of God from being slain by Jezebel? hundred of them. I hid them in two caves, uh, Obadiah says. And, and you're going to treat me like this, basically, you know, when I come back and, and Elijah says, no, that's not going to happen. When you come back, I'll be here. I'm going to meet Ahab today. And so Obadiah, good man, acting on faith again, goes and gets Ahab. And Ahab comes um, and uh, predictably accuses Elijah of being the problem. Here you are, troubler of Israel, is what he calls him as he greets him. You are the troubler of Israel, chapter 8 and verse 17. But Elijah corrects the wicked king. It wasn't Elijah that had troubled Israel, it was Ahab that had troubled Israel. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and that you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have, not follow, and, and have followed the Baals. There's the problem. You followed the, idol, the idol Baals, which God told you not to do. God told you what would happen. Here's what people do, folks. You ever notice this? <laughs> you tell them and tell them not to do something. They go and do the thing, the very thing, that you told them not to do, and then they have to suffer the consequences of that. And they come back to you and say, this is your fault. I, I, I can't tell you how many times that's literally happened to me. And maybe you too. Sometimes in raising children, you know, you <laughs> tell them and tell them not to do it, and then they go and do it, and they want to blame you for what happened. It's something about human nature. But that's exactly what Ahab does, just like a petulant child who has got his hand stuck in the cookie jar and been caught and now suffering the consequences. He wants to blame everybody but himself. Ahab's the one to blame. So Elijah says to him, basically, gather all Israel together on Mount Carmel, verse 19, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. So 850 pagan prophets. You get them together, we're going to go up on Mount Carmel, we're going to have a contest, and we're going to see who's God. And so Ahab, for some reason, agrees to that. I think he's thinking, well, Elijah's only one guy, and we have all these other people, and he's not going to be able to do anything, and I'll have him then. Maybe that's why he acquiesces to this. Um, so Elijah addresses the crowd. They gather on Mount Carmel. Elijah came to the people. He says, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered not a word. Here people are so indecisive, so uncommitted 
to anything, really. They're just going whichever the way the wind is blowing. And, and they're not ready to commit to the God of Israel, to Jehovah, or to Baal, or to anybody at this point. It's like they don't want to commit. Elijah then proposes this contest. Basically says, look, there's all of you false prophets, there's me. You all, you, you, you choose... Um, you choose a, a bull and uh, take it, sacrifice it, get it all ready to sacrifice, maybe we should say. Lay it on the altar and call on Baal to send fire down to light the fire for your sacrifice. Pretty simple request. And he says, since I'm only one person, it'll take me a while to do all this. You all go first. You get the, ba- uh, you get the bull, uh, you know, Slay it, cut it up, get it ready, put the fire, get, get the, uh, rather, the wood and everything ready, and uh, see what you can do. So they, they, they take him up on it. He says, I'm only one person, I'll, I'll go later, but you guys go first. So he, he gives them first serve, so to speak. And uh, while they're uh, doing this now, they're, they're calling on Baal from morning uh, to the afternoon and on into the evening to bring fire on this sacrifice that they've set up. Of course, Baal's not really a god, so Baal doesn't really do anything, and Elijah starts to make fun of them. Maybe, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he should cry out. Maybe he's gone to a far country. Maybe he's away. Uh, you know, whatever it is. And so they, they just get uh, crazy, uh, calling out to their god, cutting themselves to try to get his attention, just doing all sorts of uh, outlandish things. And obviously, Baal, Baal does nothing. But God's going to do something. And so we come to verse 30 of chapter 18. Elijah said, come near to me. So you could just see all the people crowded around these false prophets, watching what they're trying to do, probably pretty entertaining, all day and not able to accomplish anything. And now Elijah calls them to him, and they gather around where he is. And the text says, Uh, as we pick up, that Elijah said to them, um, as they watch him, he takes, takes the wood, he cuts the bull in pieces, this is verse 33, he says to them, you fill four water pots of water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And then he says, do it a second time. And they do it a second time. He says, do it a third time. So here's his sacrifice situation set up with the bull and the wood and the, the altar, which he makes out of 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. All of that's there. And the water's just drenching it all. And it came to pass at the time of the evening offering in verse 36 that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back again to you. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. So this huge conflagration, Consume the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trance. So this 
explode the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the transfer. The people saw the burnt sacrifice and they fall on their faces and say, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. So now you see people spewing the burnt sacrifice. A while ago, you could say anything. And now they arrive at the conclusion that the Lord is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Uh, a couple of things about this, of course, he's, he's getting rid of these idolatrous prophets and priests and doing so in uh, you know, complete fashion. Uh, and in doing that, uh, he, he's purging the land of this great wickedness. Of course, it's going to revive itself, but he's purging this land, the land of, of so much wickedness. This was just. These false prophets needed to be executed according to the law of God. And he's doing something that's, that's right and just. Elijah turns to Ahab and he says, Go up and eat and drink. There's the sound of rain. The rain's coming. So Ahab goes up to eat and drink. Elijah goes up to the top of Carmel. We know geographically almost exactly where all of this is. The brook Kishon is still there. Of course, we know where Mount Carmel is. I'll show you a couple of pictures in a minute. Uh, but he now goes up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bows down to the ground and puts his face between his knees. And he says to his servant, go look toward the sea. And he went to look toward the sea and he says, there's nothing. He says seven times, go again, go again, go again. And the servant goes, comes back, goes, comes back. There's nothing, there's nothing. It came to pass the seventh time. He said, okay, well, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. The rain is coming. You better get out of here because it's going to be a big storm. It happened in the meantime that the sky became black, the clouds with wind, heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. The hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Here is uh, where Elijah had met Ahab near Samaria. Everybody had gone up to Mount Carmel for this contest juts out in the sea. If you're flying in a plane over the Mediterranean coming into Israel, central Israel, this is uh, something that you might see. You can see here Mount Carmel jutting out into the sea. Here's its peak. Uh, the Kishon runs this way, that brook where he slayed the prophets. This is the Jezreel Valley, uh, and you can see the Jordan River in the distance. This is the breadbasket of Israel still today. A lot of crops are grown there, uh, but it was back in ancient times as well. So that's sort of the lay of the land for you. This is a view of the Jezreel Valley uh, from the top of Mount Carmel. This is a picture I took in, in 2016. Um, if you look in the far distance, of the Jezreel Valley. Again, you see all the crops that are being grown there, all these fertile fields. Uh, there are three mountains you can see in the distance, Mount Tabor, Mount Mora, and Mount Gilboa, all of which come prominently into the Old Testament story. There's a statue on top of Mount Carmel uh, that you see there to the, right, to the left, uh, Elijah slaying the false prophets. If you look closely, there's the head of a false prophet <laughs> at Elijah's feet. 
But that, that uh, statue is there at the top of Mount Carmel. And uh, here's my, my buddy, Leon Malden. We were there, and he was reading 1 Kings 18. And I took this picture, and as he's reading 1 Kings 18, there's a, there's a cloud about the size of a man's hand that just uh, happens to go by. I thought that was kind of nice. In any case, that's the geography of the area. There's some great lessons for us to learn in this story. Lessons of courage and faith, the power of God, the weakness of idolatry of any kind. Uh, two or three things just quickly let me mention. Corrupting influence or spiritually dangerous. Uh, Jehoshaphat as we started the story today, made this alliance with the king of Israel. That is not going to work out well and did not for the future of either Israel or Judah. Um, God's word warns us about evil companions, about making alliances with people who are not with him. Warns us about all of that, and God had warned Israel about that back in Deuteronomy 7 and repeatedly since then. Uh, secondly, Bible miracles demonstrate God's approval of the prophets and their messages. I mentioned this already, but it's a great lesson to learn. Um, Mark 16, 20, Jesus said, these signs will accompany you so that people will believe. Acts 14 and verse 3, uh, signs were done, miracles were done so that people would believe the message was from God. But lastly, straddling the fence of error and truth of conviction and convenience is never going to make you pleasing to God. It's never going to make anyone pleasing to God. I, I know we want, we think, we, we want to get along with everybody. We want everything and everybody to be okay. We want everybody to go to heaven. Compromising truth is not going to make any of that happen. Uh, Israel accepted both Baal and Jehovah and the calves, by the way. The northern kingdom accepted all of that as if it was all equal, as if it was all okay. And God was not pleased. We're always challenged to make a conscious decision. As for me and my house, you may serve people of the world, people of the church. You may choose to serve idols. You may choose to go another way, be involved in materialism and worldliness, but what Joshua say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the decision we have to make. Whatever direction others may be going, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So these are some of the implied lessons, I think, in the story today. We're going to go on and look at some of the further exploits of Elijah. He goes down to Horeb in uh, the next chapters and uh, look at that, uh, Lord willing, Wednesday night. Thanks for your attention this morning.